So as you know, we've had this conference here, um, a Father Heart conference. I just want to, at this point, say a big thank you to two or three people who helped make this conference happen. Uh, one particular one is Edward, who's done loads of hard work to make this happen. Um, bless you, Edward. To, to be honest, it was, it was his idea. He was the one who said, come on, we should do this. And he was right. Um, uh, I know that you were helped by Walter and a whole bunch of other people, including Lynette, who's worked really hard as well. Um, and there were refreshments people, so thank you if you're doing that. There were people who looked after kids, so thank you if you did that. Um, if, if you were here, if you were here, then you'll have already met with God and received a whole lot. And if you weren't here, you haven't missed out. Um, because you can meet with God this morning. Absolutely. Um, the revelation of truth that God has been showing us will impact all of us. And is already and will continue to grow as part of the DNA of our community here. And so we're delighted that Trevor and Linda are with us this morning. And Trevor's going to um, speak to us. Why don't you come, Trevor? And why don't, why don't we welcome him? Now, if you haven't had a chance to meet him yet, I'll just say one or two quick things. Trevor used to be a pastor. He used to be a businessman. Um, and now Trevor and Linda, along with a... And, fa- and failed at both, both, did you say? Yeah. Well, you can tell your own story, that's fine. Um, now, <laughs> along with Linda, they are called to simply travel the world and teach the church about the love of the Father. What an amazing privilege and Thank what you. a wonderful thing to do. And so as, as the church, we rediscover or discover the love of the Father. And so that's what Trevor and Linda are all about. That's what they're called to do. And we're just delighted you're here to share with us. Thank Can you. we just pray? Can I pray for you before yeah, we start? Sure. So Father, we thank you for Trevor and for Linda. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you for the call on their lives. And we thank you um, that they've just been so uh, gracious as to come and share with us this weekend. And we pray that as Trevor speaks to us now, you would use him to inspire and challenge us again afresh. And to lead us back to the Father again. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nigel. It's really good to be here. Those of you who have been here for these last couple of days, you'll know why I'm standing here. If you weren't here, these three chairs have represented to us who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've, we've kind of been exploring together this wonderful revelation that God, who is eternally three and yet united in one, has come to us and called us and made a home for us. At this conference we've been having, we we saw how even before creation began, his plan was that we should be in his heart. And we we put these chairs here to represent the Trinity. We didn't put them in a row looking at us. We put them in like a triangle looking at each other. Because the best description of Trinity is relationship. And they have made this place for us to participate in the relationship, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why we get to live in this place of love, because their relationship is all summed up in love. And so that's what we've been doing the last couple of days, and, and it's been wonderful to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We, we've, we've been on the kind of periphery of uh, what's been happening here for about 15 years, ever since we first met Edward and came to this area, and and we've come to know some of you over the last few years, so it's great to finally make it. (laughs) It's really good. So thank you for this time, and people have said to me, have you enjoyed being in here? Well, you know, is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> so that's probably not a good illustration. Of course I've enjoyed it. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a wonderful Pope, isn't he? Yeah. But it's been wonderful. Just the sense of, I'm not blowing your trumpet, folks, but well, yes, I am. Just the hunger in people's hearts has been wonderful. Because we have a father who absolutely delights to pour his love into our hearts. Because that, that's who he is. You know, we, we've so often have this view of God that he's like the old man in the sky. He's distant, he's angry, and, and, and not really very happy with us. But the truth is that this represents is that the Father wants us to participate in all the joy and love that's in his heart. He's made us for that, which is why we get this itch inside when people start talking to us about God as a father, because it's an echo deep within us that he's placed there to reconnect with him. One of um, Jesus' disciples was um, John, brother of James, who actually was Jesus' cousin. And you remember John wrote the gospel um, very much later in his life that gives us an account of Jesus' life, which is quite different from the other three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, John, in his old age, uh, lived probably in Ephesus. That's what the early church tells us. He moved over there. And, and unlike the other apostles, he, he probably didn't face martyrdom, though he suffered. But he lived to a very grand old age. And uh, one of the stories about John is that the, when he was very, very old, he couldn't walk anymore, and they used to carry him around on one of these kind of litters, these kind of carrying chairs, and take him to the gatherings of the church there in Ephesus, and they'd bring him in, and the only thing he ever said was he summed up how he felt the Christian life was all about, and he just said this every time, little children love one another. Little children love one another, because that that almost condenses the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. As we have been loved by God our Father, so we, as his beloved children, are able to love one another. And John, in his old age, wrote two, three letters. And uh, the first letter of John, right in the middle of it, he has a statement which really sums up a bit how I felt these last couple of days. John said this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is who we are. You know, I know as a church you're in this season where you're looking at identity and things like that, but that's our true identity. Our real identity is not the labels we put on ourselves and, and the fig leaves that we talked about that we wear. Our true identity is being here in Christ Loved by the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, who's, who is the one who pours the love of the Father into our hearts. That's our true identity. And that's what Paul, uh, John is talking about here. He says, how great is this love that the Father's lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? I do like that word lavished. It kind of makes me think of food. Um, we were talking the other night at Edward's house of... Uh, about the five love languages. Well, I, I have a kind of slight dispute about those five love languages because I think they've left one out. I think there's a sixth one, and that is food. <clears throat> See, food is definitely one of my love languages. I like to eat it in quantity. I like to prepare it. I like to cook it. I like to serve So that's, you know, maybe that's some of the others. But he, here's, here's John saying, 
The Father's lavished his love on us. Lavish to me is all the pizza you can eat. You know, that's lavish. Not, not Pizza Hut lavished, but, you know, really mountains of gorgeous stuff. And here is this rich, rich word that John uses to describe how Father loves us. You know, we were worshipping this morning and at the end we were just celebrating that the Father was loving us. You know, he's loving us right now. We, we don't have to wait for a special occasion. We don't have to go to a Father Heart conference, so that's very helpful. Um, he's loving you wherever you are right now. He, he, he was loving you when you woke up this morning, he will be loving you at work tomorrow. He'll be loving you when you completely make an idiot of yourself and mess up this week. He'll still be loving you because his love is not based on our, our performance or how good a Christian we feel we are or whether we've read the Bible 50 times before breakfast. He loves us because he loves us. Because he loves us. And that's what John is talking about here. We, we are really loved. If you remember nothing else today go from this place with that extraordinary incredible sense of being loved you know it's not a one-off thing it's not a one dip you can double dip you can triple dip in the love of the father he's continually loving on us so john when he says that in the middle of his letter he's looking back over years of having walked with Jesus. You know, he didn't follow Jesus, he was in Christ. He walked in him, doing the things that Jesus did, saying the things that he heard the Father saying to him, just like Jesus did. And he looked back over those years, just three short years of Jesus' public ministry, and in his gospel, he sums up so much of the things that, that, that Jesus did in a very unique way. He reflects on those events. He doesn't write everything that Jesus did. None of the gospel writers did. John actually says, I've only chosen these things to record that you might know the truth, that you might understand these things. In fact, if everything that Jesus ever said and did was written, the books in the world couldn't contain it because there was so much. John chose, as did the other gospel writers, to record specific events in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, I've often wondered how it would have been for those disciples with him for those, what, three years? The, the reality is we don't really know how it was because we only get a very short description of it. We get about 50 days of activity in the ministry of Jesus. If you want to work it out sometime, read through the Gospels. The stories sometimes are repeated, but it's only about 50 specific days. I've often wondered what happened in the rest of those thousand days because if he was with the disciples about three years that's probably what it was there was so much more that he shared with them that he poured into their hearts than we know about but the things we know are very very significant because Jesus is specifically wanting to do some very key things and John in his gospel in chapter 17 writes there the prayer that Jesus prayed at the very end of that evening. John's Gospel records the, the evening which we call the time when they celebrated the Last Supper. You can read about it in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Those three Gospel writers tell us that Jesus took the Passover bread and wine and gave it new meaning. 
He said, next time you eat this, this is going to remind you of my broken body. The bread will speak of my body that's broken. The wine will speak of my blood that's been shed. And and the, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus gave this to the disciples. Now, John doesn't record that in his version of that evening. He doesn't need to repeat it. The others have written it. Instead, he takes some other elements that they hadn't mentioned. He remembers the beginning of the evening. When they all arrived at the house in Jerusalem where they're going to have the Passover. And in unlike perhaps normal circumstances, a slave or a servant would meet them at the door and they would go in, take their sandals off. And the first thing you do before you, you kind of reclined at the table was to wash, have your feet washed. Well, there's no servant doing that. And Jesus, when they're all there, takes his clothes off, wraps a towel around his waist and kneels down at their feet and just washes their feet made a huge impression on John. And he begins to share with them what's going to happen in the next little while. He, he tells them one of them is going to betray him. He says that, uh, that Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. And Peter, not surprisingly, is pretty upset about that. No, I'll never do that. But we know within a few hours that's exactly what happened. So it was a bit of a tense evening. And in John chapters 13 to 17, we get this incredible description of what transpired that night. See, Jesus is summing up in, those, in those, that closing evening all the things that he had really tried to impart to his disciples. And by the time he gets to chapter 17, which of course is not a legitimate chapter in the, in the narrative, it's the last thing he did, what happens is he prays. And John records this prayer for us in in John chapter 17. It's Jesus' longest prayer. And the first part, he talks to his father directly. And then in the second part, he prays for his disciples who are in the room. And in the third part, and this is where it gets really exciting, he prays for you and me. You know, 2,000 years ago, in the upper room, Just before he goes out to the cross, Jesus is praying for us. He's thinking about all those who will become Christians through the testimony of the disciples. He's thinking about us, and he prays some very specific things for us. He prays that we will be one, united. We're not doing too well on that one, are we? But he says, but nonetheless, I'm going to give them my glory in order to be one. I want them to be so united, so hearts together, that they're an exact representation of how, how we are, he said. You know, I want them to be one as you and I are one, Father. That's his prayer for us. And he doesn't say, now get on and do it, think up a few schemes to have Christian unity. He says, no, I've, I've given them my glory, that they may be one. I've sometimes wondered, I wonder what that looked like. You know, what, what does that mean when he gave... His glory. It's past tense, you see. He says to the disciples, I have given them my glory. I've given it to them already in order that we may be one. So we have the glory of God. Well, we live in a world where glory is very popular, isn't it? There's lots of glory conferences. Great things happen, wonderful manifestations of God's present, but they're not the whole picture. There was a time a few years back when people started to go to services and discover they'd got gold teeth that they didn't have before. Do you remember those days? Maybe some of you here, that was your experience. It wasn't mine. The only gold tooth I've got, my dentist gave me. 
clearly some people did get this and it's, it was miraculous. And some people are saying, this is the glory of God, look, I've got a gold tooth. Well, that's okay, but I don't know whether we've all got gold teeth because Jesus says, I've given you my glory. It can't just be something like that. However exciting that is, that is a wonderful sign of his manifest presence. But the glory of God is so much bigger than just one individual thing or gold dust or whatever else we might experience in a miraculous way. They're signs, but they're not the main thing. Jesus has already given us his glory. He, this is definitely past tense. So what's he given us? What have we got? What had he given the disciples that we have already that manifests the glory of God? And when he stood on the mountaintop on one occasion with Peter and James and John up there, what happened was, we read about it in the Gospels, he was transfigured. Which means, he, literally, the Greek word for transfigured is metamorphosed, like metamorphosis. He was changed. Something happened. He began to shine and glow. And Moses and Elijah came and stood with him. And there was this amazing sense of the presence there. And Peter, when he writes about this, said, Well, I was there on the mountain. I heard. I heard it when God gave him glory and honor. See, Peter heard something that he knew. This was the glory of God. It wasn't so much the shining which faded. It was what God said. And God said to his beloved son, you are my beloved son. He said that on the mountaintop. The glory that he gave him was a recognition of who he really was. He was the object of his love. So when Jesus says, I have given them my glory... He's saying to you and me, you already have my glory. You are the objects of the Father's love. The glory of God is nothing less than the whole magnificent love of God the Father, which is lavished on us, being poured out into our hearts. That's glory. Because it changes us. It transforms us. Some of the other signs which are interesting come and they go, but the glory of God in the face of Jesus that is his love for us stays and doesn't fade. It actually gets richer and fuller. So Jesus is saying things like this on this last night. He's telling us, these are yours. This is our inheritance. This is what it is to live as a son and a daughter of the Father. We live in this place of... Being loved continually. And this is his glory. This is his delight that he wants to lavish on us. And at the very end of that prayer, Jesus says this. I have made you known to them, Father, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself will be in them. See, what he's saying there is, I'm doing this right now and I'm going to keep on doing it for all eternity. See, the mission of the Son was to reveal the Father and to be the agents through whom his love is poured out. I have revealed you to them. I have, I have, I have done this, but I'm going to keep on coming. I'm going to keep on revealing it. You know, knowing the love of the Father isn't about going to a Father Heart conference. That may be helpful, but like knowing the love of the Father is resting in that place of receiving on a day-by-day -day basis, the incredible, lavish love of the Father. And that's Jesus' delight. 
He said, I'm going to keep on doing it. I'm never going to stop. Because, you know, how much love can you have from Father? <laughs> We're just beginning, aren't we? It's just a little bit that he's given us. He's, he's in this place of pouring his love. I have made you known to them. And I'm going to continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. You know, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life was all about revealing the Father. He says many, many times in John's Gospel, I, I've come to make you known, Father. I only say the things you're saying. I'm only going to do the things that you tell me to do. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not, my, my own agenda, it doesn't exist. I only want to do what you do, Father, and that is to reveal you. In this last prayer in this evening that he prays in John 17, that's exactly what he says. When he's talking to Father at the beginning... This is how he, he sums it up. He said, um, <clears throat> he's praising the Father, and he says this, for, verse 2, For you granted the Son authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, now we know he came to bring eternal life. I guess many of us know John 3.16 off by heart, that it's through Jesus that we get eternal life. Well, here, Jesus reaffirms that. I, I've given them eternal life. And then he says this, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. It's eternal life for Jesus. It's not something that happens in the future when we die. It's now when we're living in this place of resting in the Father's love. Eternal life is to know him, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to live in that place. I mean, th this is such a gift. It's incredible. And then he, Jesus goes on and says this. <clears throat> I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And two verses further on he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus is saying, I've finished the job you gave me to do. I have revealed you, Father. I've shown them exactly who you are. But hang on a minute. He's not gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died yet on the cross for our sins. How can he say, I have completed the work? Is this a, is this a grammatical mistake? Is it, I will have completed the work? No, it's not. It's past tense. Before the cross, he says, I've completed the job you gave me to do. Well, what do we make of that? We have sung a beautiful song about the cross this morning. Is the cross not important? Is his death on the cross not part of the job that God gave him to do? How can Jesus say, I've completed the work? The work that Father gave him to do was reveal the Son, and he's completed that. The cross is something quite different. The cross is the means by which we come into that revelation. The primary reason Jesus came was not to die for our sins. The primary reason why Jesus came was because the Father loved us so much. And the expression of the Father's love is ultimately through the incredible death of Jesus on the cross. You know, 
we, we can almost miss the point here. Because we are so conditioned to think it's all about Jesus and it's all about the cross. But actually, Father says, yes, but it's about me. He has revealed me and I'm going to sum it all up. So what is going on on the cross? What's happening there? Because we believe that, that this is so important and it's a central point of the Christian message. But it's, it begins with this revelation of God as Father. It begins with a father who loves us unconditionally so much that he's willing to deal with the separation that has come into our lives because of our failure and sin. It's born out of love. For some of us, sometimes the cross is a mechanical thing. We, you know, we get saved, but actually it's born out of love. The whole point that Jesus is making here is it's because father loves us that he took Jesus, his son, to the cross. But... What about the cross? Some people, when they read the accounts of the crucifixion, look at it and they say, well, it's a pretty, pretty awful experience, of course. And you look at the opening words of Jesus when, he, when he's speaking from the cross. One of the first things he says from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could a loving father put his son on a cross? Was the sin of the world so terrible, so awful, that as Jesus dies there, hanging on the cross for our sins, that God turns his back on him and cannot look on our sin? That, that's been thought by many people. What's going on here? What, it is, what is it about the cross? Why is it that father allows his son to go to the cross? Was he abandoned? Was all this talk about God as a father really just a, just a smokescreen? That, you know, he wasn't a loving father, but he was the angry God who couldn't bear to look on our sin. When you look at what happens on the cross, Jesus says seven things, seven statements he makes from the cross. And the first one is indeed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that about? Was Jesus abandoned by his father on the cross? Because that raises the issue that if father abandoned his son because of his sin, how does that leave us? How does this fit with the gospel? Well, one of the things that's very interesting about this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the opening lines of Psalm 22. David wrote Psalm 22, perhaps 800 years before Jesus dies on the cross. But Psalm 22 is an extraordinary prophetic psalm because it describes step by step the process of what was happening on the cross. Jesus begins, he's hanging on the cross and it's as if he's going to recite his favorite psalm. It's like his favorite song that he's singing to comfort himself. And it begins with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus, when he comes into our world, he is fully human and fully divine. He enters into everything that we experience, including our sense of abandonment and aloneness. 
Jesus was never abandoned, nor was he alone. But in that moment on the cross, he entered into the agony and the pain of our experience when we're separated from God. Because if he could, if he didn't enter into that, how could we connect with him? How could he save us when he doesn't know what we feel like? In that moment, Jesus in his humanity is feeling the awful aloneness of that position. When you look at Psalm 22, it begins with those lines, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And continues to, to un, unfold the drama of what's happening on the cross. Let me just read you a few verses. Jesus enters into the agony of human existence very clearly in this psalm. In the cross, he felt alone. But had God abandoned him? Had God stopped loving him because he was there on the cross because of our sin? The reality is, of course, God never did abandon him. God did not turn his face away from him because of the sin of the world that was, that was on Jesus. God had been looking on the sin of the world for thousands of years, since the fall. He never turned his face from us. He instead was doing the opposite. He was preparing a way for us to come back. How could he turn away from Jesus from his sin, our sin on him, unless he would do the same for us, but he doesn't. He looks at us in our brokenness and sin and says, I love you. I'm lavishing my love on you. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he repeats the words of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels alone. He feels the agony of the human condition and then says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. Our forefathers cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. You can see why this is his favorite song. Because it's reminding him of the faithfulness of God through Israel's history. Then he says this. But I'm a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. What's happening when Jesus is on the cross? is exactly that. The authorities are saying, oh, you saved others, can't you save yourself? Come down if you're the son of God. The words of Psalm 22 are being worked out step by step through that prophetic psalm. And Jesus is reminding himself, he's looking. As he hears the scorning and the ridicule of the Jewish authorities, he's in that place because he knows how the psalm is going to end. He knows what's coming. Then the psalm continues, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. That's how the psalm continues. And who is there at the foot of the cross? But the womb, the mother, Mary, is there at the foot of the cross. He's looking at his mother. There's the womb that bore me. From my mother's womb, I've trusted you, Father, because she knew who I really was. I'm sure as a mother, many times she'd tell him stories. You know, before you were born, I knew you were coming. An angel came to visit me. I'm sure Jesus knew those stories. He's there looking at his mother. His heart is going out to the woman. And there next to him is his cousin John. And he says to John, look after my mother. 
Take her into your home. Mother, go to, go to John. He'll look after you. His heart is for her as this psalm continues, as the agony on the cross continues to unfold. And he looks away. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. You know what happens on crucifixion? We know they're nailed to a cross, but death comes about because the shoulders dislocate. They cannot support the weight of the body on these nails. And gradually the person suffocates. Their bones aren't broken, they're dislocated. All my bones are out of joint. Jesus knows, because he knows what the psalm is saying. It continues. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And he cries from the cross, I'm so thirsty. And they get vinegar, put it in a sponge on a stick. That wouldn't quench his thirst. That would just exacerbate the agony. But Jesus is reciting in his heart this psalm, step by step. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. How wonderful it would have been for Jesus to have seen his clothes being cast lots for. You know, we think that's terrible. But you know what? He's looking at that. He says, we're getting there. It's continuing. It's just as the father said through his friend David. This man after his own heart. He's, he's helping me through this because I know where this is going. It was a devastating experience for Jesus on the cross. But you know what? The writer to the Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, how could there have been joy in that agony? The joy was, I know what's going to happen. Because this will be the means of bringing redemption that will deal with the root issue in the hearts of all these dear ones you've given to me. For the joy set before him is us. He's thinking of us as he goes to the cross. And that brings him joy in the agony, in the pain. He's looking at the centuries to come where you and I will begin to be able to come home to where we really belong. Because that's what's happening on the cross. He's revealed Father. He's shown the Father's heart. And now in this moment on the cross, he's working through this process. But you, O Lord, you're not far off. You've not abandoned me. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. He talks about this. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not 
despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The Father has never and will never abandoned those who have been given to him. Jesus the Son was not abandoned on the cross. The Father did not turn his face away. He was right there with it, with him, watching him every moment because of the joy set before him, because of you and me. The whole issue about the cross is this. If Jesus had not revealed him as Father, we would have a wrong perception of the cross. We would have seen it as a judgment, as God's punishment and anger and hatred towards mankind. Instead, it is the greatest symbol of the love of the Father that there could ever be. Because he's a father. The cross is a symbol of the father's love for mankind. He has not abandoned us. He has not rejected us. He has not despised us. He is the eternal father who is through the cross, through his son, drawing us back home. So Jesus can say in John 17, I've completed the work you gave me to do. I've revealed you, Father, so that when I go to the cross, they will know who you really are and what's really going on. Jesus continues in this amazing psalm as he's there on the cross. He says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You see, he's looking even to the future, to the millions beyond Judaism who will come into this revelation of the Father's love and come to know God as Father through this event. He's looking down the centuries to other nations. See, this is the glory that he's given to us. This is the glory of our God in Jesus. And then the psalm comes to its dramatic conclusion. He says, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. He's thinking of us. And what's he going to proclaim? That he has done it. What are the last words that Jesus cries from the cross? It's finished. And that doesn't mean I've had it or I'm done for. He says, I've done it. It is complete. The price is paid. The blood has been shed. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm coming home, Dad. We've done it. Salvation is bought. Sons and daughters will come home because of this moment, because we've revealed you as a father who's longing for us to come and live in his heart. No, Jesus was not abandoned on the cross. Instead, Father, Son and Spirit together were working out the final drama to bring us home. He cried, it's finished. I have completed the task. The doorway is open. When Jesus said, I'm the door, now the doorway is wide open. For what? For us to come home to Father. He said, I'm the life. Yep. What sort of life? Life lived with the Father. And he also said, I'm the resurrection. 
Because in just three days, just on the Sunday morning, the resurrection would break out. And Jesus would step back into our world, risen, and tell Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers I'm ascending to my father and your father. He's now your father too. Let's go home. Jesus in Hebrews says, when he ascended, he took many sons to glory. The whole process has begun. He's wrapped his arms around us broken and wounded and such sad people and says, now come home. Because the Father is lavishing his love upon you. Many of us have walked this path for many years with Father. We're getting to know him better as each day goes by. You know, there might be somebody here today that's never heard this before. I don't know any of you very well. Maybe this is your first time, but this is, you have come into a place where the love of the Father, God the Father, is being poured out because he loves you. And the death of his son for you on the cross is the means to bring you home. There are people here who would love to explain that to you more. And if you're here for the first time and you've never come to that place of realizing exactly how much Father loves you and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, do talk to someone. Because this is a place where you can find that wonderful joy and peace. See, knowing God as Father is the most glorious thing because it transforms our lives. We know him as Father through Jesus, his Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray now and I'm going to pray for all of us that, that God will continue to pour his love into us. But if for you, for the first time, you've discovered that today, I'd encourage you, come and tell Nigel or someone. He's the guy at the front. Or someone who brought you, maybe. Because this is a great place to come home. So thank you, thank you, our dear Father, that you never gave up on us. Even though we were lost, even though we didn't really know you, we were, we were so far from you because of our failures and our sins, you sent your beloved Son, as you'd always planned to do, into our world to show us who you really are. A loving Father whose heart is continually towards us, whose desire is to pour love on us, to refresh us with that love. And Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to reveal who you really are. Because Lord, we've got it so wrong, we were so afraid of you, we were so scared of you, but you are a loving Father. And thank you that when Jesus went to the cross, you did not abandon him there. But instead, you used his incredible sacrifice to bring us home. So thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have made it possible for us to receive your glory, your love, your presence, and to live in that glorious freedom that is ours as the sons and daughters of God. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you that you are a father to us. Thank you that your word says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Thank you, Father. Amen.